0: did you notice that the things which keep us from having a heart for Christ alone are not bad in many cases, but often keep us from having total allegiance of being Christ's disciples. In fact, many of those things that uh, keep us from having total allegiance or having a heart for Christ alone are things given to us as gifts by God. It's a very subtle thing. The six marks of the disciple are a part of the very DNA of ZPC. They are so important to us as that we have them pictured in our gathering space. We talk about them in every new members and choirs class. If you look in your bulletin each week these six marks are there. By God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is my prayer that this will be a hard-hitting intensely practical series. We're going to be talking about the biblical expectations of faithfully following Jesus Christ as his disciples. For some of you, this is going to be a review, and it's going to be a chance to reevaluate your life and where you are in your relationship with Christ. For others, it may be a first-time look and may offer new and exciting challenges. As we consider the six marks of a disciple, while the last five could be taken in almost any order, the first is crucial. It must start here, with a heart for Christ alone. That's the foundation for the rest. While there are several places in the Bible to be sure that talk about this very subject, today we're going to be looking at Jesus' passionate words in Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 35 as the basis of our thinking. This passage comes directly after that familiar parable of the great banquet in, John, in, in Luke chapter 14. This passage also, comes at a time when his disciples are preoccupied with lots of other things they're on their way to jerusalem it's going to be the passover and the last passover of jesus he knows that this is where the cross is going to happen but what are his disciples doing they've expected him to set up a kingdom everyone is talking the buzz is that is jesus the one who's the messiah And so now, many of his disciples are wondering, now what place am I gonna have in his cabinet? What place of power and prestige am I gonna have in this new rule, this new kingdom? There's great curiosity and deep anticipation. With all of this as a context, Jesus directs these words, which I'm about to read, to his disciples, some of whom are conjecturing what positions they're gonna be given. If you would, please follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Please follow along in your Bibles or your pew Bibles or on the screen. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, and I believe he's turning to his disciples, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying this fellow began to build and has was not able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. May God add his blessing, understanding upon this really hard-hitting passage, and may he apply the truths to our lives this day. Please join me in prayer. Good and gracious God, we're grateful for the chance to share these moments together. Speak to us now. Speak to each one of us as individuals. Speak to us as a church. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. I believe there are three main points that Jesus is making here as he's talking about having a heart for Christ alone. The first is that the disciples' relationship with Jesus must, must be the highest priority in his life. Jesus passionately makes this point. And at first it seems like he's going to the extreme as often is the case when in, in Eastern thinking when they, when they want to make th- points. Because he talks about our most committed relationship here on this earth, our families. It is within this context of the family that one is cared for, that one is nurtured, that one is taught the most formative lessons of life. The family unit is meant by God to be that most important unit that we find ourselves in. The family should be only second to God. I wouldn't be surprised if when I was reading or we were reading this passage together, that some of you really had questions about that word hate. How can we hate our our families? Along the same line with our families, he includes hating our own lives. I mean, didn't Jesus say that uh, we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves? And is God asking us to hate something that he gave us as a gift? The late Bruce Larson, a a much-loved pastor and a friend, deals with this very question and this is so important when he says the word for hate in Aramaic means this, to love a great deal less. He shines further light by saying, I think Jesus means that if God and his kingdom are of all-consuming importance, then all other loves are far less by comparison. If God is really God, He must be worshiped above all others. If Jesus is Lord, we must have a heart for Christ alone. Jesus, I believe here, is stating emphatically that nothing can come close to competing for the supreme loyalty or allegiance in our lives. Everything else in its proper place, as the youth have pictured it, should come at the feet of Jesus all of the other parts of our lives should be under the lordship of Christ. C.S. Lewis picked up on this idea in a letter that he wrote in 1952. Listen closely, sometimes C.S. Lewis is difficult if you if, we, if you go through it go through him too quickly. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I can learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. In a startling manner, Jesus goes on in verse 27. And says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And remember, again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are expecting something really special to happen. They were going to be lifted up, but not on a cross in their minds. And yet, in essence, he's saying, you must be willing to die for me like I'm going to be willing to die for you in just a few short days. You are to follow the steps of your teacher, your mentor being willing to do what he did. Just between you and God, a God who knows you better than you even know yourself, is your relationship with Jesus the highest priority of your life? The second main point that Jesus makes is that a disciple must count the cost. And in order to make this point, Jesus uses two very helpful and vivid metaphors. The first has to do with building uh, a tower. And those towers uh, could be seen throughout uh, the the, the area there and they would be in vineyards so that uh, the, the, the owner could look over what he has and especially at harvest time to make sure that stuff wasn't stolen. Jesus said if you're going to build a tower, you must first sit down and calculate the total cost of the building before you start the project. Let's say he doesn't cost out the project in advance lays the foundation, and then he can't finish it because of a lack of funds. He will be ridiculed by all who see it. When I think of that, I think of an experience I had once taking a group of people in what was uh, after the Iron Curtain had just come down and we were in East Germany. And as we approached Leipzig, East Germany, I noticed above all of the rest of the, uh, the, the landscape there was a tower. And it really looked pretty good. And I I, I was kind of fixated on that. And as we were doing the city tour, I asked the tour guide, now tell me about that tower. And she started to laugh. And she said, you know, that tower has never been finished. That tower, 20 or 30 stories high, uh, looks good from the outside, but it's never been finished and it's never been occupied. And for us, it tells us about the communist regime. And and it's kind of a, a, a laughingstock. They didn't have the finances to finish it exactly like Jesus was speaking the second metaphor has to do with a king who is about to go to war with another king he must stop and take an inventory of his forces or suffer overwhelming defeat in the case of following him Jesus is telling his disciples that they will face opposition he says it's not going to be easy in a few days they would scatter they would scatter in fear because armed soldiers would come, being led by Judas to take them over in Gethsemane, and they would would be outnumbered probably about 20 to one. They must be willing to count the cost. Consider the reality of a situation in Romania under communism. John Oros tells of gathering, there was a gathering where there were several people, and at the end of that service, after there was preaching, the gospel was presented, Several people came up and said, we want to become followers of Christ. But the Christian leaders said to them, it's good that you want to become Christians, but we want to tell you that there is a price to be paid. Why don't you reconsider what you want to do? Because many things can happen to you. You can lose, and you can lose big. Most of the people decided to take a three-month course to prepare for their baptism, They're coming out, as it were. They were warned, it's really nice that you want to become a Christian, but when you give your testimony, there will be informers who will jot down your name. Tomorrow, the problems start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. It's not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbors. You can lose your kids who are climbing the social ladder. You can even lose your life. Or else then writes in a powerful way, Let me tell you my joy when we looked into their eyes, and their eyes were in tears, and they told us, if we lose everything but our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it is worth it. Have you counted the cost of having a heart for Christ alone? Jesus' final point is that a disciple must be salt in the world, or become worse than worthless. In Jesus' day, salt was used in several ways. Without refrigeration, like we have today, salt was used to be a preservative for their foods. It was a flavoring, much like we use it today. Salt was also used as a kind of fertilizer which helped uh, to make things grow. Finally, salt was used medicinally to help bring healing. In each of these usages, Salt would lose its own identity as it was being used up. Its whole mission was to get outside of itself, as it were, and accomplish the purpose for which it was intended in the setting in which it was placed. Jesus, I believe, is making a powerful statement, especially to these disciples who have visions of grandeur swimming around in their minds as they contemplate Jesus setting up his kingdom. And speaking of them as salt, he is saying that just the opposite of grandeur will be true if you accomplish God's purpose for you. If Christ is the highest priority of their lives, if they have counted the cost and they are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus, they will be completely used up. The outcome will be that they will be preservatives in a society that is in the midst of decay, They will be a positive flavor in the lives of many people whose lives are bland and meaningless. They will be catalysts for growth as people come to know their Savior and Lord. And like Jesus, they will be agents of healing and wholeness to people who are battered and wounded by life. In losing their lives in the kingdom, they will find far greater joy than anything they could possibly imagine, especially more meaning than being a high-ranking official in some kind of a new political kingdom. The British journalist and writer, Malcolm Mugridge, vividly reflects, reflects this experience when he writes, I can say that I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear in this illustration of salt that if salt has lost its saltiness or purpose, it it is worse than worthless and it's thrown out. I have a feeling his disciples knew what he was talking about. If they weren't willing to accomplish the purpose for which they were called, they would do more harm than they would do good they would be worse than useless haven't we seen this to be true in our world disciples when they aren't accomplishing what christ has called and shown them to do can sometimes do more harm than good in fact many have decided not to follow jesus because of the inconsistencies of people who call themselves disciples the story of a young mahatma gandhi maybe tells that makes that point. You probably have heard that Gandhi was very much drawn to Jesus. As he read the Gospels, he loved who Jesus was. And so, as a young man, he decided to go to church. And as he went to church, he was told that he couldn't sit in a certain spot. He had to sit way in the back. As Gandhi thought about what was taking place there, he walked out. And he said, until Christians act like Christians, I'm not going to become one. When we aren't salt we are worse than useless useless doing more harm than we are good picture with me jesus standing before us today and you're we're asking the question what does it mean to have a heart for christ alone what would he say to us just as he spoke passionately to his disciples that day i believe he would make these points to us he would say it first begins by coming into a relationship with this Jesus, the Christ, by receiving the gift of God and making Jesus Christ our Savior. This is where it has to begin. That happens as we confess our sins, as we repent or turn around, as we invite Christ to come into our lives. If you have never done this, this is where it starts. And I can remember sitting out in a church service very quietly. No one knew what was happening. And praying that prayer, and really that was the beginning of my faith journey, and it was like when I was nine years old, the most important decision I ever made. This is where the, dis- the journey of discipleship must begin for each one of us, whoever we are. Next, Jesus would say that we must worship him with all of our hearts, with our, all of our minds, souls, strengths, falling down in humble allegiance, before the risen and the reigning Lord, not only on Sundays, but every day of the week, is crucial. Without intentional worship, other things begin to slip back into our lives and take the place of highest priority. In addition, I believe that Jesus would say that we must be students of the Bible. This is our handbook for discipleship. We must know and apply the Bible on a daily basis. Jesus would go on to say that we need other people to walk in this path with us. From the very beginning, the disciples weren't sent out by themselves. They were sent out two by two. In many cases, it was even more than that. We need others, whether it's in a one-on-one relationship, a mentoring relationship, or whether it's in a small group kind of relationship. We need others who will hold us accountable who will inspire us, who will encourage us. If you're not in a mentoring relationship or you're not in a small group, this is a must. You can't do it alone. I believe Jesus also was saying that we must increasingly entrust our whole lives to Jesus. That means those who are dearest to us. That means our time. That means our finances. That means our jobs. That means our futures. And the list goes on and on. And the more we live life, the more things that he brings to our attention that we need to submit to him. And last, I believe that Jesus would want us to step out of our comfort zones and look for ways to become salt in the world where we live day by day. That means emptying ourselves and our identities to serve and care for others just like Jesus did. A heart for Christ alone is a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day proposition. Today in the second hour, we're going to do something very special. Some of you may even want to come back. Not to hear the sermon, but come in at the end at least. But uh, we're going to be privileged to experience the baptism of one of our senior high youth. He's been talking, we've been planning this for several months. His name is Chandler Orbaugh, one of our senior high youth who wanted to demonstrate that he wanted to have a heart for Christ alone. Josh Mygott and Greg Lanham, who have been a very important salt in Chandler's life, are going to be assisting with the baptism. It's going to be a special time. If any of you have uh, prayer concerns, if you want to kind of question what we've talked about today and what that means for you personally, There will be people over by the cross afterwards who would consider it a privilege to pray with you. Let us pray. God, thanks for this time that we've spent digging into your word. Continue to speak to us as we gather around your table, as we experience this fellowship, knowing that you are the one who wants the deepest allegiance of each one of our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.